But unless Apple want to sacrifice their battery life, they can't sacrifice their cobalt. Companies don't invest enough to improve the local community situation on the grounds. There is this really a complicated supply chain. It's highly probable, if not absolutely certain, that the device on which you're listening to this episode runs on a lithium-ion battery. In fact, lithium-ion batteries are found everywhere nowadays. From your smartphone, to your laptop, to your lawnmower, to your seemingly guilt-free electric car. These batteries have become the cornerstone on which today's increasingly wireless world is built. They are lighter, more powerful and greener than their predecessors. Essentially, the lithium-ion battery has become the tech world's darling. Without it, our mobile devices just wouldn't be so mobile anymore. Conflict minerals such as cobalt and coltan are essential to the functioning of our smartphones. However, in contrast to coltan, cobalt has largely been overlooked by legislators and is therefore at the center of this podcast episode. While coltan is essential for controlling the electric flow inside the circuit board, cobalt is essential to the lithium-ion battery that powers your phone. It should come as no surprise then that our increasing reliance on portable electronics or the snowballing trend to drive electric vehicles has led to an unprecedented demand for the mining of cobalt. While this mineral has made billions for tech giants like Apple and Samsung, it is also at the heart of ongoing human rights abuses in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The Democratic Republic of Congo, or the DRC, is one of the poorest and most desperate regions in the world, whose recent history has been tainted by civil war and corruption. Here, artisanal mining, which is mining by hand as opposed to industrial mining, is a source of livelihood for many people. But the conditions under which the work is carried out are all but safe. Forced labor, child labor and serious health risks are not uncommon. In dangerous tunnels, hundreds of feet underground and with little to no safety measures or oversight, the Congolese miners extract the very essence of what makes our lithium-ion batteries work. This is where our cobalt mineral embarks on a long, chaotic and largely unregulated supply chain journey. It will then travel from intermediary to intermediary, from traders to refiners and manufacturers, to component producers, to well-known consumer brands. It embarks on a truly global journey, from Africa to Asia and beyond, before eventually finding its cozy home inside one of our beloved smartphones. With such a complicated supply chain, who, if anyone, should be held accountable for the dire conditions and human rights abuses in the DRC? Also, what initiatives are in place to increase transparency in the global value chain to improve the lives of the people involved in extracting cobalt? Hello and welcome to Namasphone, a podcast series about current global legal issues produced by law students at Tilburg University's Global Law Program. I'm Gabrielle. And I am Natalia. In today's episode, we'll be diving deeper into the legal issues surrounding the supply chain of cobalt to try and find out why it's been so immensely difficult to hold anyone accountable for what's happening in the mines. Our episode will revolve around three interviews. Firstly, Alsha Opperman, a former master's student in particle physics at Warwick University, will walk us through the science behind cobalt use. We will also talk to Mr. Emmanuel Umpula, a Congolese lawyer and human rights defender who has been advocating for equal resource distribution and victim compensation. Finally, we will speak with Annika van Baar, a PhD candidate at the Faculty of Law at the Freie Universiteit Amsterdam, whose research focuses on corporate involvement in international crimes and human rights violations. But let's start at the very beginning. What actually is cobalt? We must confess, our technical knowledge on minerals is limited, very limited. We're law students after all. 
We contacted Alta Opperman, a former master's student in particle physics at Warwick University, so that she could tell us more about the science behind cobalt. Consider the following your Cobalt 101. A warning, it gets pretty technical. Cobalt is most abundantly found as a compound of minerals in copper and nickel ores. So although it's mined all over the world, the largest supply is from the copper deposits of the Katanga province in the DRC, with more than 60% of the world's share being produced there in 2015. So here specifically, it's found in the sulphide minerals of the copper ore deposits in carbonate rocks. It's a mouthful. So as a result, the cobalt is a byproduct of the mining of primarily copper ores and has to be separated out of the waste products once the copper has been extracted. So if you want to legislate cobalt, then you need to legislate the ores that are actually being mined because cobalt isn't being mined. So this is how you get your hands on cobalt, but why the big fuss about cobalt in the first place? Why is this particular mineral in such high demand? What makes it so unique? Well, cobalt has several very useful properties. Now, it maintains its magnetic properties and its strength at temperatures much higher than other metals with similar properties, which is fantastic. But also, cobalt forms alloys with many metals, and when it forms these alloys, it actually imparts its properties to them. So it creates these super alloys that are hard and corrosion and wear resistant and magnetic, if you want them to be, even at very high temperatures. So this accounts for a large demand of the world cobalt supply. Now, cobalt is not only demanded for the production of lithium-ion batteries, it is used for a wide range of products, from turbine blades to prosthetics to pigments and paints and dyes. They all contain cobalt. It even turns out to be an essential part of vitamin B12 in animal feed and supplements. Now, this is all very interesting, but let's dive deeper into the world of lithium-ion batteries. Why is the modern-day battery so dependent on cobalt? Now, the reason that we use cobalt in the cathode, as opposed to some other metal oxide, is because the cobalt oxide provides a higher energy density than any of the other oxide alternatives. But the downside is that it has a low power density. So you can think of the energy and the power densities as a water bottle, for example. So if you take the size of the bottle, that could be the energy density. That's how much water the bottle could contain. And the opening is the power density, so that's how much water can come out of the bottle at a time. A large bottle can carry a lot of water, while a large opening can pour it more quickly. So cobalt batteries with the high energy capacity are good for products that require a long runtime because they carry a lot of energy but they release it slow. So products like phones, cameras and laptops, but maybe not so much for power tools that require short bursts of high power. This means that unless Apple want to sacrifice their battery life, they can't sacrifice their cobalt. Lithium-ion batteries have become indispensable for those who can afford the latest portable electronic equipment, but what about those who can't? We will now speak with Emmanuel Mpula, a Congolese lawyer and human rights defender based in Kinshasa, the Congolese capital. Hello? Hello. Hello, Gabriel. Hi, I'm Gabrielle. I'm here with Natalia. Hello. Good morning. Hello. 
Before cutting to the interview, some background information on the DRC is needed. Again and again, the Congolese have become caught up in the violence and conflict over their resources. The most recent conflicts started in 1996. On the one hand, this war was a spillover of the 1994 Rwandan genocide and civil war. On the other hand, it was the outcome of rivalries between different communities in eastern Congo. These rivalries can be traced back to colonial times. Mr. Umpula has been active in the field for more than 15 years now and has been advocating for equal access to resources as well as adequate victim compensation. In his experience, the avenues for achieving justice in the DRC are full of obstacles. We have asked him to tell us a bit more about these obstacles. For me, it's about how the government respects the law itself. Because it's about how we do, do we share money from uh, the exploitation for copper. Is the government uh, gaining enough money from that uh, mining industry? If yes, can the government share that, uh, this money with local communities? So, in Congo, the law is clear. It states that the money from the mining should be distributed between the government, the national government, the local uh, government, and also the local communities, the entity where that copper is produced. So that one should be in terms of royalty. So what what is the problem is that the government doesn't like to, to give back money uh, to the place where miners are. Mind that's the problem. So, uh, for me, if the government can share this money from the mining, that can help. And also, companies should um, respect what the law says. I think that's a huge problem because they don't respect uh, what the law says in, in terms of uh, social uh, corporate responsibility. They don't do enough. And uh, for me, if they can do that, that can be a good way to share benefit from mining with uh, local communities. But at this stage, what we see is that they don't, companies don't invest enough to improve the local community situation on the grounds. The government don't do enough to. So what are the potential ways of overcoming these obstacles? If the government can implement correctly laws, that can help. But this is not the case because the government doesn't do enough to, to get uh, laws uh, implemented. Also, NGOs, they are doing a lot in terms of training local communities, building capacity, because you have some cases where victims, they don't know where to go, what to do, how to, to go to justice, for instance, if you are they are abused, where can they go? So as the government doesn't do enough to get laws implemented, at the same time, uh, local communities, they don't know about their rights. So I think what NGOs are doing now is to, to build their capacity and to show them if you are abused, what can you do in terms of claiming your right? Uh, there is a debate, it's uh, the binding treaty. 
at um, UN international level. Indeed, such a debate has been taking place. The Human Rights Council Resolution 269 represents the initiative to redress an imbalance between the rights and responsibilities of transnational corporations at the international level. The binding treaty mandated by this resolution could potentially prevent and remedy human rights abuses within transnational corporate systems of global production. I think that can be also another way to push companies to respect human rights. Because um, you, you can have a company in Congo which doesn't respect human rights on the ground. It can be possible to go against the parent companies to justice, for instance. I think that can be a good way to push them to respect human rights. Another solution is that how can big companies like Apple support, invest in terms of improved lives of communities in Colombia, for instance, by giving credits to families? Because now, why people are, uh, are mining? Because they don't have another way to live. How can we help that kind of people to, to change their um, way of life? So that, that can be also some uh, another um, solution to, and it's possible. That can be another way to help them. So there are definitely possibilities for change, but a lot of multi-level collaboration would be required to include all stakeholders and hold all actors accountable. You may have heard of a very ambitious piece of legislation named the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, which was passed by US Congress in 2010. It includes a provision, Section 1502, that is aimed at combating the illegal use of profits from the mineral trade in Congo to fund rebel groups. Section 1502 is essentially a disclosure requirement that calls on companies to disclose whether their supply chain is linked to the sourcing of conflict minerals. Companies are required to carry out supply chain due diligence and report their findings to the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. The conflict minerals currently regulated under the Dodd-Frank Act are referred to as the 3TG, which are tantalum, also known as coltan, tin, tungsten and gold, or their derivatives, or any other mineral or its derivatives determined by the US Secretary of State to be financing conflict in the DRC. While today there is no explicit regulation on the global cobalt market, since cobalt does not fall under the 3TG, Amnesty International and AfriWatch have called on multinationals to include cobalt in their human rights due diligence practices. Under increasing scrutiny of NGOs and shareholder activists, popular companies like Apple and Tesla have indeed started including cobalt in their reports and have given updates on their strategy to avoid human rights abuses in the sourcing of cobalt in addition to the 3TG. In the light of these concerted efforts, we may expect future due diligence legislation to include other conflict minerals alongside the 3TG. But now, let's get back to the Dodd-Frank Act and its mandatory reporting obligations. At the time of enactment, Section 1502 was expected to have a significant positive impact on the ground in the DRC. Did it fulfill these expectations? Annika van Baar has described the use of mandatory reporting obligations for corporations to combat human rights abuses in their supply chain as a new trend. In the following interview, she shares her views on the effectiveness of such mandatory reporting, the roots of conflict in the DRC and the Dodd-Frank Act. Yeah, this, this trend of, of mandatory reporting obligations, I think, comes 
uh, for a large part from just an increased awareness of the roles of corporations in uh, uh, in human rights violations. So there have been basically since the early 2000s more and more NGOs and also good and larger NGOs that uh, started to focus more clearly on this issue and they've really pushed the issue within civil society but also within governments. Corporations are more and more seen as, as socially responsible actors in society, uh, also beyond what's in their own organization, so beyond employees and also seen as responsible for things like environmental damage but also human rights violations. And this has been this idea has also been pushed by civil society organizations uh, towards states. And this type of legislation, this mandatory reporting uh, obligation, allows governments to impose some form of regulation. So in a way, you know, point into the, to the right way, but, but not have to devote a lot of resources to, to enforce those regulations because it's self-reporting by the, the corporations themselves. So instead of doing the investigations themselves, they are making the corporations do the investigation. And uh, that saves them a lot of resources. There's also another side to it because governments are uh, always quite reluctant to impose strong regulations on, on corporations in all fields, so also in the field of business and human rights. And this is in a way sort of like a compromise between more rigid uh, regulations and enforcement and complete self-regulation by corporations, so it's sort of like a hybrid form uh, between the two of them. Dodd-Frank is actually not meant to regulate human rights at all. It's meant to regulate the financial markets. And uh, the, the Dodd-Frank Act was a reaction to the 2008 financial crisis. So it was, it, it's a bit of a weird provision uh, in there. And it shows that, that civil society can find very creative ways to attain their goals, in a way. I also knew this, this popular story of Cobalt um, that's in the mobile phones and how this creates conflict in the DRC. But then I started to read a bit more and I found quite different historical accounts of, of the conflict in the DRC and also very critical accounts of this Dodd-Frank Act by scholars pointing at the, the, the fact that the causes for conflict in the DRC are much more complex than just Cobalt or just conflict minerals. The DRC is the second largest country in Africa and has the most natural resources, including a vast ecosystem of fish in the Congo River, the second largest rainforest in the world, diamonds in the Kivu region, and gold and metals in the troubled eastern region. It is also home to the legend of Tarzan. The backdrop of the Tarzan movie is the reign of King Leopold II of Belgium, who exploited the land's vast resources violently for his own benefit. Ever since, there has been a continuity in conflict in the DRC. There's a term for this, which you might have heard, the resource curse, which refers to the failure of many resource-rich countries to benefit fully from their natural resource wealth. Think of examples like Nigeria, Venezuela and Iraq. In Annika's opinion, the most recent conflicts restarted in 1996 as a spillover of the Rwandan genocide, but the deeper causes of rivalries between different communities can be brought back to colonial times and the rule of Mobutu. Resources, they have always played a role in these conflicts um, because the DRC has so many of them. But also, I think, because it's the only industry or only yeah, industry in terms of industrial mining, but also the industry of the artisanal mining, which is done mostly by hand in, in, in smaller uh, cooperatives, is the only industry to speak of. So if you are going to have a conflict in that, in that country, then that's the industry that's going to finance it. I think there's also a more pragmatic link there. 
um, because in my research on, on uh, corporate involvement in international crimes, you see that when you have other um, industries, such as an armament industry or an industry of chemical companies uh, that, that are willing to use slave labor, for example, to keep also the war economy running, then you have other industries uh, that become involved in these crimes and that fi finance these crimes. And in the DRC, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's mining. And then, yeah, on the, the idea of the resource curse, in my opinion, it's often cited as almost like a direct link. There are resources, so there is conflict. But the idea of the resource curse is more about an indirect uh, connection. And this connection is that um, when a country has a lot of resources, um, this can create greedy incentives to take control over these resources, and this hampers uh, the development of a democratic and effective government. Uh, of course, Norway is often cited as the, the exception to this rule, but it's, it's, it's a process that's quite easy to imagine, right? Um, but this greed is, can, is only one possible explanation or motivation for this resource curse. Mm -hmm. Another strand of research focuses more on grievances that are orchestrated by the fight over these resources. So this, these are two ways in which the resource curse can uh, connect between resources and conflicts, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's only about greed. What I want to problematize is this assumption that stopping to source minerals puts an end to the conflict, because this stopping of sourcing can have its own impact on the conflict and can actually create further incentives for conflict. So the conflict is actually much more complex. It involves so many actors on so many levels. There is no easy way out. So to unravel the conflict will require complex multi-level solutions. Earlier, Mr. Umpula already hinted at what would be needed. Serious collaboration between the various actors and stakeholders on the local, national, international and global level. This seems like a good moment to return to our central question of cobalt mining and human rights violations. How can those involved at the other end of the spectrum, such as tech companies, contribute to a solution? Annika shared her thoughts on one important soft law instrument, the OECD Due Diligence Guidelines. The, the OECD due diligence guidance um, is referred to in the Dodd-Frank Act as a method for corporations to go down their supply chain and, and see um, whether they use conflict minerals in their products. You can imagine that, for example, uh, Nokia or, or Apple, um, they make smartphones and they uh, have tons of suppliers to uh, get all of the, the, the little parts of, of, of the mobile phone. And one of them, for example, is Goldtown, which is used in the chip. Uh, and it gets these from the international market. Uh, and the, the international market uh, gets these from countries that that have coltan, and this goes via, via smelters. Um, but under this, the smelters, so the, the supply chain, go down the supply chain through the smelters, there's this really uh, complicated supply chain. And uh, the OECD due diligence guidance tries to provide a norm for what corporations should do to check their supply chain. The Dodd-Frank Act suggests that an internationally recognized due diligence program should be used, and this one is at this point the only one that exists. You might be thinking, 
Why on earth would companies voluntarily take initiatives based on a soft law mechanism such as the OECD due diligence guidelines? For, for corporations, uh, participation in these, these voluntary programs can be good, of course, because they can advertise themselves as being good corporate citizens um, and also more negatively adopting these uh, and implementing these measures may also shield them from accusations or from uh, claims. Um, but the question is, of course, um, and, and in relation to, to the Dodd-Frank Act, well, it's hard law that they have to use this due diligence system. Uh, but uh, research has shown that there's quite a difference between how diligently they have used this, this due diligence uh, check. On the one hand, and I already uh, alluded to that a little bit earlier, after 2010, um, it seemed that corporations had stopped sourcing from the DRC because people in the DRC reported that uh, the trade in minerals was completely down and uh, this, of course, caused huge problems for, for these people's livelihoods. And you have to imagine that it's not only miners that benefit from the mining, but also uh, the people selling food to the miners and the people renting houses to the miners and this is many more people are reliant on this mining sector than the miners themselves of course so that would indicate that companies had left and were no longer sourcing from the DRC but then analysis of the reports that were filed with the SEC under the Dodd-Frank Act show that only very little companies were able to demonstrate where their minerals came from. And this is, of course, a very weird paradox, because you would think that if the companies had left uh, and then later filed a Dodd-Frank report, so to say, um, that they would proudly present their supply chain as being conflict-free, right? But it's not as easy as, as that. So you can, could imagine that, uh, that Apple goes to this Chinese supplier and asks all sorts of questions, uh, and the Chinese supplier says, no, but no, but we don't know where it comes from. And then Apple can file a report saying it's done its due diligence, but still they don't know where the minerals came from. Now the question remains, will the Dodd-Frank Act and the OECD due diligence guidelines have any long-term impact on corporate behaviour? For the Dodd-Frank Act, I have very little hope because one of Trump's executive orders leaked in which it was announced that they would suspend the Dodd-Frank Act. And earlier this year, on 7 April 2017, the chairman of the SEC basically uh, gave a, a, a signal to all corporations that they would no longer be forced to file a report with the SEC. So, yeah, the, the, it seems that the current administration is not going to act on, uh, on Dodd Frank 1502. But, yeah, the OECD guidelines, I think. I think the way that they work is, I think they work in two ways. First, they enable companies that want to have a good impact in, in, in this area uh, to give them guidelines how to be able to do that. And they can help enforce a norm that corporations should not source from conflict areas um, uh, that can maybe in, in the longer term draw in more companies to adhere to that norm. And that way the OECD guidelines can be effective. There's one tech company that might be worth mentioning in this episode, Fairphone, a Dutch smartphone producer dedicated to producing a smartphone that is as fair, sustainable and conflict-free as possible by drastically redesigning the traditional supply chains. 
In Fairphone's press release of June 2016, the company claims to have successfully managed to transparently source all four of the conflict minerals, tin, tantalum, tungsten and gold. Again, cobalt appears to have been overlooked. This begs the question, is it really possible to guarantee a conflict-free Fairphone? What I'm going to say now, it's only my, my idea, my, uh, my impression. But I think it would be... Like I said, this, this this supply chain is so difficult, and I don't know about their exact supply chain, but yeah, I think that that Fairphone is doing a really good job in trying to be conflict-free and trying to fight alternative ways to to produce smartphones. I'm not sure, and I, I I don't know, but it would be really difficult, I think, to really guarantee a hundred percent Fairphone. Uh, like I said, with the difficult supply chains, etc. But I think maybe that you could compare it to Tony Chocoloni, who was trying to make slave-free chocolate. And they started out saying that their chocolate was 100% slave-free, but they changed the claim in 2007 because they realized it was a little bit too ambitious. So now they're, they're striving towards 100% slave-free. And yeah, I think that's very admirable and maybe something that Fairphone could think of too. But if they claim to be 100% free, then who am I to say that they're not? Thank you for listening. We now glimpsed at how complex the problem of corporate accountability is and how we are all part of it, since we all carry a part of the problem in our pocket, our mobile phone. Let us hope that step by step through awareness raising, advocacy and initiatives like the OECD, the Dodd-Frank Act and the UN Binding Treaty on Business and Human Rights, we may someday soon listen to a podcast on a 100% slave-free, truly fair phone.